Welcome to Talking History. I'm Cassie Cooper. I'll be your host on the show. This podcast will cover United States history from the post-Civil War era during westward expansion to the modern era. We will talk about the political, social, and economic developments that have helped to shape the United States into what it is today. We will analyze the many achievements and mistakes through a historic lens to better understand the events as they occurred and see how they shape our world today. All right, as we're getting this episode started, I want to give a shout out to those students that listened to my episodes and gave me some pointers, not just saying, Mr. Cooper, this sucks, but actually uh, letting me know where it could get stronger. So, yay, thank you. All right, what we're looking at today, you know, we finished up our last episode with the age of American imperialism, and this slams a straight dab into the first World War, the Great War, World War One. That's what we'll be looking at today. So with this war, teachers love to tell it in a way that we, we look at the causes that, that led to this conflagration, this explosion of violence that engulfs the world. And the way we usually teach it is by looking at the acronym MAIN, M-A-I-N. I'm going to try another one called mania because I want to add one more cause into it. So when we look at mania as the causes for World War I, the first one, M, M is for dun, 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 dun. M is for militarism. And what that means for, for a country to be engaging in militarism, they are trying to build the newest the most formidable weapons possible. And they see other people doing that. And so it becomes a competition, um, an arms race, if you will. And this goes in line with the fact that this is also occurring at the same time as the industrial age, the second industrial revolution. So countries, we're seeing a movement, a change from you know, a musket that has three steps, right? You you have your musket. There's somebody running towards you. You've got to you got to put some some powder in there. You got to put some paper or cloth. You got to put the big old ball in there. And hopefully, if the people running at you haven't gotten to you and killed you yet, you can shoot at them. And if they're not more than like ten or fifteen feet away, you might actually have the accuracy to hit them, and then they might die. Well, now we've advanced this stage where those three parts that went into shooting a musket. They're now all contained in, in the one shell of, uh, that is no longer circular. It's now pointy so that it has a better um, ability to fly through the air and much greater accuracy. And we've also gotten to the point of being able to shoot more than one at a time. We've got rifles that can shoot multiple rounds, repeating rifles. So that's just the beginning of the military advancements. But generally, nations around Europe and the United States has it started to engage in this too, we're building up their military. So militarism is the first one. The second one is alliances. And alliances have been going on in Europe. Well, it's it's the thing that we were warned against by our founding father, by George Washington. In his farewell speech, he stated, you know, not to get involved in the intrigues of Europe, not to get to form alliances with these, these warring nations as they had been warring on and off for, for hundreds of years. 
But there were ongoing alliances. There were alliances between Britain and Belgium and France and Belgium and Britain and France and France and Russia and Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire and a million other places. <laughs> it's not as accurate as it could be, but either way, it's a complicated uh, thing. There's so many people tied together by alliances in Europe. And it goes in this principle that, you know, if you've got a friend and your friend gets in a fight and you're there, are you going to help them? Most likely. Now, what if the person your friend is fighting has a friend? Well, they're probably going to help them. And then if you have other friends and they see this, the next thing you know, we don't just have a fight between two people. We have a riot. Um, now, imagine that with nations and that riot is a huge, huge war. Now, that's M and A. Now we have N in mania. And the N is for nationalism. And when we think about our modern nation states, they really started to form in the 19th century. You know, our own nation is only a little bit older. You know, it formed at the very end of the 18th century. So the modern nation states, well, they're trying to build up an idea of who they are as a people, as opposed to just being uh, certain ethnic groups living in an area or random groups of people. So in this bid to build up allegiance to a nation, what was pushed was something beyond patriotism. And the way I always explain this with my students, that patriotism is when you love your country. Nationalism is when you love your country and hate the other ones. And so this can be a problem when you have nations right next to each other. And when you combine it with the next one, I for imperialism. Being an empire means that you control another nation. You are sovereign, and the other nations that you have grabbed power over are not sovereign. They have to bow down to your economic, military, political pressure. And ourselves, we had just become an empire, right? As we talked about in the last episode with the acquisition of the old Spanish territories and Hawaii. Well, Europe had been doing the imperialism thing for a much longer time, but they'd gone into a kind of new round of it with the great scramble Right, when uh, European nations met at the Berlin Conference in the, the late 19th century to carve up Africa. You know, despite the fact that there were already sovereign nations there, they decided to carve it up and put it under their spheres of influence, similar to what happened in China with the European nations in the United States. So in general, you've got empires based predominantly in Europe, um, also in Japan and, and China, that are taking over land other nations. And in particular, you have the Austro-Hungarian Empire taking over Bosnia-Herzegovia. Bosnia-Herzegovia used to be part of the Ottoman Empire, but as the Ottomans were falling towards the end of their reign and become the sick old man of Europe, they started losing territory to other new nations and stronger empires. The Austria-Hungarian Empire had taken over Bosnia-Herzegovina, which was filled with many ethnic Serbs. And right next door to Bosnia-Herzegovina is Serbia, which was trying to create a pan-Serb or pan-Slavic nation. Right? Their idea of nationalism was to have all Sir Slavic peoples together, especially those that considered themselves to be Serbian. And this is something that we will see again in the 1990s after the end of Yugoslavia, um, after it splits apart and we have the, the Balkan Wars. 
And then the final one. And this ties back into all of them. They're all interrelated. The final one. This is the non-long-term cause of World War One, right? The first four, militarism, alliances, nationalism, imperialism, those are long-term causes. Things that have been building up over at least 100 years in some cases. But the final one is, is the spark, right? If all those other things are tender, things that will help a fire burn, this is the spark that lights the fire. And at some point, at some point, war was going to break out. Who knows what would have been the spark? But in the case of World War I, the spark that we had was an assassination. So for this assassination, I'm going to tell a story I like to tell that is my sandwich theory of World War One. When I say mine, this is something I have actually read in other places. I did not come up with this originally, so don't let me, um, you know, don't let me take credit for that. But I love this theory because it just shows how the littlest thing can change your fate. The smallest incident, such as stopping for a bite to eat, can change the course of the world. So we go back to Bosnia-Herzegovina. We go back to the idea of a pan-Serbian nation and nationalism and to the power of imperialism as the Austro-Hungarian Empire's second-in-command, the Archduke Ferdinand, and his wife, Sofia, are planning a tour of Sarajevo, the capital of Bosnia-Herzegovina. Now, they're planning a tour, and the Archduke and his wife, they're a rare incident of people in their walk of life marrying for love. Normally, these are prearranged things. So Sophia is actually not quite as high-born as the Archduke. And because of this, when they're traipsing around Vienna, they couldn't do it together. They were socially shunned in some ways because of this, but they loved each other deeply. So when he decides to tour Sarajevo, he decides this is a moment where he and his beloved Sophia can be out together in person. So despite the fact that there had been rumors and intelligence that there might be an attempt on his life while he was there, he prohibited the Austrian armies from coming into the city, right? He just had a small detail with them. And while that's going on, let's look at what was going on on the other side. That pan-Slavic, pan-Serbian movement for independence had acquired a few young men. On the Balkan Serbian side, we have seven young men. Seven young men who know that their lives will be short. They all have tuberculosis, which at the time was a death sentence. These men, whose names I have a hard time pronouncing, included one Gavirlio Princep. He's the one that we know of as famous. They'd been trained back in Belgrade from a terrorist league known as Union or Death. Uh, part of the Serbian Black Hand under the leadership of Colonel Apis, the B, person whose real identity placed him as Colonel Draguntin Dmitrovic, the head of Serbian military intelligence. They trained these young men, and on January 3rd, sent them back to Sarajevo with pistols, bombs, and cyanide capsules so they couldn't be caught alive to wait the Archduke's visit. Huh? The Archduke came on his 14th wedding anniversary to tour the city with his wife, a very special day for he and Sophie. June the 28th, 1914. Ignoring all pleas that he bring in military, ignoring all pleas that he postpone until another day, 
he heads out in a motorcade of four cars with his wife and himself in the second car. As they're going along, two of the young men are waiting, waiting by a bridge. The first does not throw his bomb. He thinks a policeman had been blocking him and he was worried. The second throws his bomb at the, at the, at the car. It does not hit the archduke. He protects Sophie and deflects it to the street. A fragment does cut Sophie in the face and wounds other passengers in the third car. Dozens of onlookers were also injured. This young man, Kabrinovich, swallows his cyanide capsule and jumps off the bridge into the Miljaka River, but ends up vomiting up the poison and landing in a river that is only a few inches deep. He is quickly taken into custody. The two cars, the first two, continue on their way to City Hall. Archduke Franz Ferdinand jokes that huh, this assassin would be given a Medal of Honor in Vienna. Right? Um, obviously, not always the most popular person. Well, the mayor in the first car was unaware of what had transpired. The noise of this motorcade and these old, loud cars drowned out the bomb. So we run along and pass three more of these conspirators. They do not take any attempt on them. They make it to City Hall, where the Archduke is furious. But he is not going to give up. He is still going to continue around the city. He wants to take continued show of force and show of power that he cannot be intimidated. Well, as they leave to go check on the bomb victims at the hospital, his chauffeur gets lost while following the mayor's car. The sixth assassin, Gabriz, is at the Imperial Bridge, and he watches the car, car speed by. The mayor's driver had made a wrong turn. He turns onto Francis Joseph Street, a named for Archduke Ferdinand's uncle. Immediately, they notice they've gone the wrong way, and they hit the brakes and stop right in front of a young Gavrilio princep who is stopped on his way home, feeling dejected, feeling like his death will be in vain because he will die from tuberculosis without having created any great um, life work, you know, such as killing uh, one of the leaders of the empire that has taken over his nation for the last few years. Well, he grabbed a bite to eat, and as he walks out, the Archduke's car has stopped right in front of him. He draws his gun, he fires twice, hitting both the Archduke and Sophie. Sophie cries, for heaven's sake, what's happened to you? She was in shock, unaware that she had also been shot. She then lost consciousness. Franz Ferdinand turned to his wife and his final words, Sophie, dear, Sophie, dear, don't die. Stay alive for our children. Is, is night, is, is night. It is nothing. It is nothing. And by 1130 that morning, they are both dead. Bismarck of the German Empire had made a statement before that what would lead to this seemingly unavoidable European war was some damn foolish thing in the Balkans. Well, on this day, some damn foolish thing had happened. And very soon, all of Europe would be ablaze. <laughs> We'll see you next time on Talking History of Big Coop. Remember to subscribe and tell your friends.